0: Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and (laughs) Nav. In today's episode, we speak to Julie Janiski about designing all-electric buildings, the importance of good grid resilience, and the technology that enables a clean energy supply. Julie is a partner at Borough Hapold and co-leads the Boston office as well as its US sustainability team. She's involved in the delivery of high-performance projects at all scales, working to decarbonize the built environment, including analysis and implementation of all electric systems, citywide carbon planning and writing climate action policy. Welcome, Julie. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. One of the quite outstanding things I think I've read in recent months is the Bureau-Happold report report that gives the commitment to design all new build projects to be net zero in operation by 2030. And if that's not enough of a commitment, to also reduce embodied carbon intensity of all new buildings, major retrofits and infrastructure by 50% by, again, 2030. Now, that's only eight short years away. So I'm just wondering how really that is going to be possible. Sure, Allison. And it's a great question. The goals
1: that we've set out, we're also very excited about. And when we were having a conversation about what the level of commitment is that we should be making, we decided to shoot for the stars and make sure that we were giving ourselves a challenging task. So on the operational side, in terms of carbon, the energy that buildings are using and therefore called the operational carbon of the building, getting to zero by 2030 will have a a number of different aspects to it. The greenhouse gas emissions of the electrical grid are a significant part of how we're calculating the amount of operational carbon a building is emitting. And the cleaner the electrical grid gets, the less Greenhouse gas emissions, the building will be emitting by virtue of being connected to a clean electrical grid. And that's actually one of the reasons why there's such a huge amount of focus around all electric buildings is that as the grid gets cleaner, having a 100 percent electric building connected to that clean grid is one of the ways that carbon will be reduced in the built environment. On the embodied carbon side, embodied carbon as opposed to operational carbon is where we're looking at the amount of carbon emitted into the planet by virtue of extracting raw materials, manufacturing materials, transporting and installing materials. So the physical, tangible building itself, as opposed to the energy that the building is using. And reducing that by 50% is quite a tall order. It also raises a very fuzzy, wicked problem of what we're actually comparing ourselves against to be able to say that we have achieved 50%. So we're doing quite a bit of work internally to understand how our buildings to date have been performing around embodied carbon. And then we're starting to look at the top opportunities for reducing embodied carbon. And that comes in structure by looking at the use of steel, heavy timber and concrete and the way in which all of those materials can be optimized to reduce their embodied carbon footprint. We're also looking at key questions like the type of insulation that buildings use. Some of them are quite nasty, to use a very simple term. And some of them, there's a huge amount of room for improvement. And uh, there already are materials on the market that can help reduce the embodied carbon footprint of all of our projects.
0: Thanks for defining those. I think it really does go back to that issue we were talking about earlier, about how definitions do vary on this. Absolutely. In your report, you talk about the portfolio. And if you could just clarify for me, because you've got a list of buildings that are all electric ready, then you've got a list with all electric. So perhaps let's go right back to the beginning and to the very starting point. What would you define as an electric building? Sure.
1: And I think the conversation around the words that we're using in the industry to start to define some of these goals and the metrics that we're using are incredibly important to clarify because we do use different words in different regions of the world. We use different words in different disciplines. And by not relying solely on the word, but by providing a definition with specific metrics, I think we can continue to use the words that make the most sense in the different markets that we operate, but still pursue the same goals. In our practice at the moment, when we talk about an all-electric building versus an all-electric ready building, first and foremost, the definition of all-electric, and I believe this is the same everywhere, does not currently include emergency backup. The development of large-scale batteries for backup is progressing and uh, there are advancements being made with that technology, but it is not at the place today where it's as reliable as a generator that uses fossil fuels. So I would say, number one, emergency backup is generally excluded from that definition for purposes of life safety, resiliency, and making sure that our buildings are safe environments for people. Number 2, an all electric building is then moving forward uh defined by having otherwise zero combustion in the building. The types of equipment that we might use in a business as usual or typical building would have a gas fired boiler to create heating hot water for the heating systems in the building. It might have a gas fired hot water heater to produce the hot water being used in sinks and showers. It might also have gas-fired equipment like stoves. All of those are transitioned to electric technologies in an all-electric building. And the key to making that work and still be efficient is the use of heat pump technology. In the past, the option for electric equipment was largely electric resistance, and electric resistance is incredibly inefficient. So one of the key things that we hope people will see in the study is that avoiding electric resistance is still (laughs) actually part of what we're trying to do. And instead, we're looking at heat pump technology as much as possible. In a cold climate, one of the critical pieces of an all-electric building actually doesn't have anything to do with the equipment, but has everything to do with the performance of the envelope so that we have a well-insulated, well-sealed, high-performance envelope that in the winter does not let all of the heat that's generated just pass through the walls back outside. So we're reducing the amount of heating energy that we need to use in the first place, which is incredibly important in a cold climate to make sure that the types of blackouts and brownouts that we have from a massive spike of electricity use during the summer are not happening in the winter when it's a life safety issue and pipes could freeze and consequences would be quite bad. The definition of an Electric ready building is something that is quite different depending on who you talk to at the moment because there is not a prevailing industry definition. Because a lot of the electric buildings that we've been working on to date are in the commercial space with commercial office buildings, commercial lab buildings. We've been doing a lot of work on this question with building developers. The notion of all electric ready had a lot to do with how could we set the building up to make sure that number one. One, the space is allocated for the future equipment to be installed to switch from a gas-fired piece of equipment to an all-electric equipment. And are there components of that system that should be installed day one instead of waiting because it would be massively easier and more cost-effective to install it day one?
0: rather than having to come back and install it later. And that makes total sense. Designing a building with a view to transferring it to electric when the technology or when the building is ready to do that. You've mentioned some of the challenges of designing an electric building. The envelope, I think, is a key part of the structure. And to get that sound and tight and working with the particular climate that it is within... Obviously, other systems are involved, including heat pumps, heat recovery systems, and they need space. So what would you say were the main challenges of designing an all-electric build? The first part of the main challenge was actually, I would say, the
1: most fun because it felt a little bit like, I don't know if you're familiar with the show Mythbusters, but it felt a little bit like mythbusting. We had an opportunity to sit down with many of our clients Have a preliminary conversation about the goal of reducing the carbon footprint of the project to talk about the idea of an all electric building and how that starts to support the possibility of having a zero carbon footprint. But then hear all of the questions and concerns and the questions that were based on gas is five times cheaper than electric. I don't want to run a building that costs five times more to run. Or, as I mentioned, the misperception that electric resistance is the right way to solve this problem or the only way to solve this problem in lieu of other types of equipments. And you rightfully point out heat recovery in addition to heat pump technology uh, and how much that can
0: contribute. And can I just jump in here and ask you to explain what you mean by heat resistance? I didn't pick that up in a physics lesson. So (laughs) if you could explain, that would be really helpful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Probably the most helpful way of talking about it is to compare it to the other technologies that I was mentioning. So the level of performance of a piece of equipment is measured with a metric. And typically, one of the most typical metrics that we use is called the coefficient of performance, the COP. And essentially what that's measuring is the amount of energy that we're getting out of a piece of equipment compared to the amount of energy that we put in to the piece of equipment. And in a lot of cases, historically, it's mostly been measured as a loss. So if we put one unit of energy in, how much of that do we still get out to be able to use after it goes through the process inside the equipment? So a gas-fired boiler has an efficiency of 95%. That means of 100% of the energy going into the gas boiler, 95% of it comes out and is usable. Electric resistance has a very similar profile. For one unit of energy that comes out, about 95% of it is usable. And heat pump technology is radically more optimal and more efficient so that when you put one unit of energy into a heat pump, you get in the range of three to four units of energy out. And that equation and that metric is where it, you start to we are starting to see why it's actually feasible to have an all electric building today that does not have a five times penalty for the cost of energy in the building. It doesn't have the kind of inefficiencies that it might otherwise. And depending on how clean the electrical grid is that you are physically connected to, you could potentially have greenhouse gas savings today compared to building a typical building. And that is that is true in Massachusetts where I'm currently located. It's not true everywhere in the U.S. and it's certainly not true everywhere in the world. And that's one of the key things that we point out in this study to make sure that a very clear awareness of what the current makeup of the electrical grid is how much of it is renewable and whether that means that an all electric building connected to that today is actually more efficient and more carbon sensitive or if it's better to to do an all electric ready approach and really think about something further
0: in the future and one of the projects you've been working on is the house at Cornell Tech Which is, I think, currently and actually still the world's tallest and largest residential passive house certified building. I do think so,
1: but I think it's going to be surpassed either by an affordable residential building in New York or a project called Winthrop Centre in Boston, which is a mixed use building pursuing passive house certification as well and when we started the Cornell Tech project, I think the team was really excited to see that achievement the tallest and largest passive house you know when it was certified and opened in 2017 almost five years ago which is now crazy to think about we were all hoping that that record would get slashed as quickly as possible because that meant that other people
0: were adopting it at that kind of scale. Well, that really is positive. It sounds like the momentum's building and there will be contenders for that particular throne. It's an amazing achievement, a 26-story high building in a region where temperatures range from minus 5 degrees C in winter to 30 degrees in summer. That's quite a significant range, isn't it, to have to manage for a residential building within a university. Am I correct?
1: Yes, yes. It's an apartment style building, but specifically for
0: graduate students and faculty. And what pushed you to go for the passive house accreditation? Because that is not easy. It is not at all. And I love
1: this story. I had the benefit of being at some of the the very earliest, if not the earliest design meetings. The CEO, David Kramer of Hudson Companies, raised the question to say, can this building achieve... Passive House. It's not been done at this scale. It sounds pretty crazy. <laughs> what are we signing ourselves up for? And it just so happened that when I was preparing for that meeting, I found a press release for a 20-story office tower in Vienna that had just achieved and certified Passive House. And he said, this is so great. I'm actually going to be in Vienna In a few weeks for vacation with my family, and he ended up contacting a Passive House consultant to take him on a tour of not only the building, but also a number of student residents, and therefore a program that was much more specific to the building that we were working on. So he came back from his trip in Vienna and said, okay, we're going to do this.
0: We're all in. This is the goal. We're going to make it happen. And there's a fair amount of serendipity in that story, isn't there? Obviously, you met with somebody who was really enthusiastic and was prepared for the challenges. Do you think this type of building is something that needs to be supported in a stronger fashion by regulation? Or is it enough that developers and clients want to push? I think that the answer is ultimately both. The project
1: will benefit significantly from an owner, from a developer, from a project team who understand what the pros and cons are, who understand what the opportunities and challenges are achieving some of these targets at the same time. I think that we also benefit from the regulatory space and having government agencies, state agencies, local cities and municipalities put forward requirements that are helping the industry move forward. We're working with the state of Massachusetts right now, the development of the next version of the energy code that the state will put out. And the governor passed a climate bill last year that requires the development of an opt-in net zero energy code, which if a city decides to say, yes, we're going to do this, all the new buildings in their city would have to be designed to net zero energy once this code is in place. And we're doing quite a bit of work with the city of Boston. And they have published a draft of what they're calling the net zero carbon zoning initiative, which means all new construction in the city of Boston under this program, and it would require zero
0: carbon. Do you think those hopes, aspirations and expectations are realistic?
1: Yeah, I I do, actually. And I think that's that's the most exciting part, is that we are in a space today where we have really excellent technology, electrical grids that are getting cleaner, envelope technology
2: that's performing at a higher level. It's really reassuring, I think, to see that not only are they possible, but there is buy-in for all electric buildings. Would you say, however, that they are more expensive to run? So I, <laughs> and
1: I, I'm sorry for this answer. It depends, I think is unfortunately the accurate answer to that question. At the same time, uh, we do actually include some specific information about what we're finding on that question in some of the projects that we're working on in the the study that we've published. And we've acknowledged that, yes, there is a, a good potential that it will be in the realm of 2 to 8% more expensive to operate, depending on the cost of electricity in your jurisdiction, the type of building that you're building. While the answer is, I think, yes, in most cases, it will be slightly more expensive. I'm hoping that that won't always be the case. And I think the good news is that it's not such a huge delta compared to what some folks think it might be.
2: Yeah, I think these buildings are clearly a step towards what's coming for the future. So when do you think that it will change and they won't be as expensive to run? And do you think that at this time, the cost difference is possibly a deterrent? Certainly, yes. In institutional
1: buildings, in university projects and cultural projects, I think it might be less of a deterrent because these are buildings that the owner intend to operate and maintain for decades and decades. At the same time, a lot of those institutions have different budgets for capital expenditure and the money that's used to build a building versus the money that's used to operate a building. In the commercial space, we've also been doing a lot of work in the way in which developers are setting up the leasing agreements for the potential tenants who are coming into the building has a huge role in the conversation about whether it's something that they can talk about and take on. Are they potentially not going to attract the kinds of tenants that they want to because their building costs are 5% more on the electric bill than this other building is? And will the tenant see that level of detail? Does the owner cover it? There's a lot of nuance there
2: in terms of how that
1: question gets. Tackled.
2: And we touched on this a bit earlier, but what new technology or even existing technology has been introduced for all electric buildings to make them more possible or easier to implement? Is there anything new on the horizon that might come through to help even more? I think I'll start with the best thing we can do in a building design is to build a high performance envelope.
1: First and foremost, there's a lot of progress on the envelope side in terms of manufacturers who are producing envelope designs that have appropriate thermal breaks to prevent thermal bridging. From inside to outside and vice versa, there's a significant amount of momentum around whether or not triple glazed windows is an appropriate use. And and again, that depends on the climate as well as the region. But there's a good amount of progress in the envelope design and manufacture space. On the equipment side of things, there is a lot of focus on heat pumps, as noted earlier. What I will say is that one of the specific performance criteria of heat pumps is around how they operate in very cold climates. Uh, They operate quite well in temperate to warmer climates, but they have traditionally not operated well in colder climates. And over the past decade, the technology has been developed to continue to operate at lower and lower and lower temperatures, which is one of the key factors that's making it much more feasible to talk about an all-electric building in a cold climate. I'll add in the idea of heat recovery, uh, which is being able to take advantage of moving thermal energy around the building rather than creating new thermal energy. If you're in a building that has a big room with a bunch of computer equipment and no matter what time of the year it is, you're constantly needing to cool that building, but there's another room in the building that needs heating, you can take the heat that you're pulling out of the computer room and transfer it over to the room that needs heating so that we can reuse the thermal energy that's already been created rather than using even more energy and more carbon to create it in the first place.
2: And you've mentioned climate a few times now. How differently do all electric buildings need to be designed depending on the climate? What are some of the things that you can do in warmer states compared to the colder ones or even countries?
1: One of the cooler projects that we've been wrapping up over the past year is a building in Santa Monica in California, which is pursuing a living building challenge certification, which is a really exciting certification program. And one of the components that it includes is net positive energy and also all electric systems. And in the climate of Santa Monica in California, it does not get nearly as cold as it gets in the Northeast. And therefore the idea of an all-electric building in Santa Monica, California is much easier and already in place. So not only from a climate perspective does it help, but also from a construction perspective, there are more contractors who are more familiar with that technology because it's been around longer because it doesn't have the kind of obstacles that it has had traditionally in colder climates. In colder climates, the heat pump technology, even though it's been advancing to be able to operate in colder and colder and colder climates, you'll recall the metric that I brought up called the coefficient of performance, the COP, how much energy we're getting out for how much energy we're putting in. What happens with the heat pump technology is that as it gets colder, the COP declines So it becomes less efficient, even though technically it's still working, which means it's using more energy to create the same amount of energy that it would in a warmer climate. And that all adds up to the idea of making sure that as we're designing all electric buildings and assessing what it is that they need in a specific climate, we're not getting to the point where we're using so much electricity that it's creating a burden to the electrical grid and creating risk. Uh, from, a res- from a building resiliency and life safety point of view.
2: And going back to the question about costs for these buildings, is Borough happold involved in designing and building net energy positive buildings? And could that potentially help with the cost issue in terms of if you're generating more energy than a building needs, could you potentially sell it back to the grid to sort of offset some of the expenses that come with all electric buildings? That is definitely possible, Nav. There are different regulations with
1: different utilities in terms of what the requirements are to connect to the grid, how much electricity they can actually accept from a building, what the pricing looks like, and if it's a one-to-one or if you know they'll give you, you know, fifty percent of the cost as a benefit rather than one hundred percent of the cost as a benefit. So that varies quite significantly depending on the electrical grid that you're on and the utility provider that is responsible for the building that you're working on. I do think the idea of net positive energy is a productive one to be able to look at the way in which buildings can become generators of renewable electricity onto the grid in addition to the utility scale types of projects that exist. I mentioned the project in Santa Monica. It's a 50,000 square foot office building, which is quite large for projects that are pursuing the full living building challenge certification. There are a number of other projects that we've worked on that have uh, either pursued or achieved net positive energy. Another example is the Hawaii Preparatory Academy, which also achieved living building challenge and was significantly energy positive in the years that we've been measuring it based on the fact that Hawaii is quite sunny they generate more renewable energy with PV than we could in lots of other places globally. And they also ended up using less energy than we predicted uh, because they were able to optimize the use of the building, use a lot less electric lighting and use daylighting more often, open the building up for natural ventilation and use the cooling system less often. The operations of the building is actually one of the key critical factors of achieving zero energy, much less net positive energy, because we can, we can model and predict lots of things in a modeling tool. But the actual operations is where, is where the results show up and where we might actually see
0: the net zero or the net positive uh, impact. And can I just kick in again with one final question relating to the infrastructure you've mentioned and grid resilience? Do you think it's robust enough to support these building initiatives of all electric buildings and, and all of those ready-to-go electric buildings? Or is there more work to be done on that? Um, Alison, I'll repeat an answer
1: from earlier. It does depend because the robustness and resiliency of the electrical grid also varies substantially around the globe. We're doing some work in the Central African Republic, where the quality of the grid is quite volatile in terms of when electricity is available and when it's not. Uh, It's also incredibly varied in terms of how the energy is being produced that's on the grid. It's not atypical for electrical grids to have what's called peaker plants, so that when you get to the middle of the day and everybody wants air conditioning, there's additional energy that's pushed onto the grid to satisfy that demand. But
0: in a lot of cases, it's made with the dirtiest option available. So I think the grids sort of need to be handheld to grow at the same speed as the design and the initiatives that are going on in terms of these builds.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the key technologies and components that a lot of electrical grid providers, constructors, et cetera, are looking at is the question of storage. So in addition to the idea that the grid is distributing electricity from one place as it's being made to a place that needs it. There's also an emerging, again, significant amount of work that some folks are doing looking at utility-scale battery storage so that electricity can be produced at the best optimal times of day, when it's cheaper, when the peaker plants are not turning on, and that electricity can be stored and then distributed when needed to help not only improve the efficiency of where the electricity is coming from, but also modulate the demand throughout the day and throughout the
0: week to be more efficient. And I think there's real positivity coming through here, but I feel we've got three streams happening at the same time. We need the innovation coming through from building designers and engineers such as yourselves. We need the infrastructure and the grid holding up, but we also need the research that's going into batteries and how we can hold this electricity. So it's very much a three-pronged attack, isn't it really in this situation? But I do feel that we've turned the corner and this is now an acceptable concept that really is going to work in a real life situation. I think the three-pronged approach is a really excellent
1: summary. I would add to that, that existing buildings are in a category of their own. And that's where the conversation around the envelope is by far the most critical. So that uh, as we're looking at all of our old leaky buildings that we adore and love and should absolutely reuse to the best of all our abilities, the performance of those buildings And their envelopes to reduce the amount of heat that they need in the winter is really, really critical to make sure that
0: the all-electric approach can work for both existing buildings and new buildings. And possibly the issue of retrofitting and adaptive reuse is something maybe we need to revisit in the future. Exactly. The expectations of how we translate those buildings into all electric buildings going forward. But as you say, I imagine that is a very complicated road to go down. It is indeed. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to Nav and I today. I know I've learned a lot. So it's been really valuable and useful to see how these buildings will work in a real life situation. Thank you.
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you for
0: having me. This was a lot of fun. We welcome your feedback on the podcast. So please aim all your comments to waneditorial at haymarket.com. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So follow, download and join us as we look into the world of architecture from a female perspective, wherever you are.